Welcome to the Wealth Standard Podcast with host Patrick Donahoe, author of the best-selling personal finance book, Heads I Win, Tales You Lose, and one of the nation's most influential financial advisors. The Wealth Standard's focus this season is investing. 2020 opened with markets and asset prices at all-time highs, but many of us experience more financial uncertainty now than we did a decade ago. Although there are more choices and opportunities than ever before, the risk-to-reward ratio teeters on a global fulcrum, contributing to the roller coaster of emotions surrounding financial well-being. It seems like everyone is walking on eggshells. This season, we'll cover topics revolving around investment theory and strategy, atypical investments versus conventional investments, and the role of investing within personal wealth strategies. The Wealth Standard Podcast is committed to inspiring you to be more financially free. There is no better time to gain clarity about your wealth strategy, your investments, and your financial future than now. Hey guys, how you doing? This is Patrick. Thank you for uh, tuning into the podcast this week. It's the Wealth Standard, and we are going to be talking about real estate again, but just investment in general. And I have a good buddy of mine that I've known for better part of a decade, Andrew Lenoy. He is one of the managing partners at Four Peaks Capital. They specialize in a specific niche of real estate, but he just started a, a new podcast. And so I wanted to get him on the show to, to share that with you guys. So you can get all the links to Andrew on the show notes. So go to thewealthstandard.com to this episode, and it'll have links to Andrew's new podcast as well as his uh, his social media. Listen, you know, I, I've been getting a lot of questions, a lot of inquiry in regards to what's going on in just the investment world in, in general, especially in real estate, where things are going. You know, right now, I think we're in a very interesting, interesting time. You know, a few episodes back, we talked about the investor behavior curve. It's typically driven by emotion and what to look for there. I've heard stories this week of just a lot of speculation where just uninformed, uneducated individuals are really going about investing, whether it's using the simple to use platforms like Ameritrade or Robinhood, and they're making uninformed trades, uninformed investments. And my concern is that that's happening in the real estate market as well. And so right now is just a very, a very interesting time. Not to say that there aren't deals out there because there's always deals. Now you got to really differentiate between what you're feeling, what you're thinking, and then what the reality is. And so now is the perfect time to get second opinions, third opinions, find other perspectives that may be more informed than yours. Because whether it's some of the stories around oil went to nothing, right? And everyone wants to get into buying oil at the dip, but yet they go on, they find an ETF that sounds like it's oil, but it's really an oil company who doesn't benefit from the oil prices being that low and ultimately going bankrupt. Or it's people trying to get into a FANG index, the Facebook, Apple, Amazon, and Netflix and, and Google or Alphabet, you know, so it's those, you know, top tech stocks and they, they end up buying, you know, the ETF Fanger, which is not the Fang stocks and ultimately buying on margin and getting crushed there. You know, these are the times where you have, you know, a lot of emotion driving decisions. And so education is what mitigates that emotion and allows you to make the best decision possible with the money that you've saved. So I look at there being opportunities. At the same time, I see high emotion. When there's high emotion, doesn't always equate to the best investment, unless it is 
fear-based emotion, but I don't think we're there yet. And we're in really interesting times. It's time to be smart. It's time to be informed. I think Andrew is definitely informed. He's been a smart investor for the last 10 years. And I believe he's someone that you should follow and, uh, and learn from. So without further delay, I'm going to get to my interview with, uh, with Andrew, but I have a couple other episodes coming up in the future. So make sure you go and get on the newsletter list so that we can uh, send you updates. And when new episodes come out, just go to wellstandard.com to subscribe. Okay, everyone. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're safe. Hope you're enjoying your summer so far. And we'll talk to you next time. See ya. Taking a break from the show. You know, entrepreneurs inspire me. I love meeting leaders of successful ventures who discover an idea, formulate the business, and then execute. You'd assume that they know how to structure their personal finances. I believed that too, but I was wrong. Entrepreneurs are never taught to effectively manage their wealth to work alongside their business and lifestyle. All of that work, effort, toil, and time wasted. Entrepreneur 101 is an online course that teaches you a financial strategy that works so that success is not a flash in the pan, but lasting. The spirit of the entrepreneur doesn't have to be compromised. Register for the Entrepreneur 101 course today for free at thewealthstandard.com forward slash E-N-T. That's Echo November Tango thewellstandard.com forward slash E-N-T. Okay, I'm joined with my good friend, Andrew. Andrew, it's awesome to see you, man. Hey, good to see you, You've been on the podcast before, but it's been a while. It's definitely been a while. Definitely been a while. Oh, he's so pumped to be here though. So as I mentioned, Andrew, you know, he's the he's a co-founder and managing partner at Four Peaks Capital Partners. Uh, he's been in the, the real estate game for the better part of, of 10 years. But Andrew, I mean, you've given your background before, but why don't you just take a moment and talk about your background both previous to your real estate investing profession and then uh, currently what you're doing. Yeah. So I'm in Phoenix now. I've been here the last three years. And uh, prior to that, I was in Los Angeles for about 20 years and I was in entertainment. So if anyone's seen the, the show Entourage on HBO, I worked for the William Morris Agency, which that show was based off of and represented comedians and celebrities for, I was at the company for about 16 years. Sometime Right after the subprime crash happened, my folks who, mom was a retired nurse, dad was a retired plumber, their retirement got crushed in the downturn, the subprime crash. And here I am making six figures at a huge talent agency, all of my money tied up in the market. And that was kind of my big aha moment of how does that happen? They, you know, they raised three kids, lower middle class, and followed the advice of their financial advisor, and it didn't work out during that the subprime crash. So, started reading a lot of books, started reading on economics, and it kind of all led to real estate, and started investing in single families. I think about 2009, which looking back on it was a really good time to get into the market, just as far as pricing goes. So, 2009 was when I started kind of this whole real estate journey. It was good timing. <laughs> Yeah, it was great timing. Well, it's one of those things like, okay, you have your, you know, your portfolio and the markets crash the bottom, but you get into, you know, one of the better asset classes. Obviously, the markets rebounded. It's interesting though, you know, this is kind of a side note before we get into our, our topic. We look at the understand that most have that, you know, if the market goes down by 20%, uh, the Dow goes down by 20%, the S&P goes down, the NASDAQ, that if it goes back to 20% or it goes up by 20%, you don't go back to even right? It's like if you have $100,000, you lose 20%, now you have $80,000 and you gain 
20%, you gain 20% in the $80,000, not the full hundred. Right. right? And so that's, right. it's really interesting to see kind of how people, wow, that's simple math, but I've never put that together before. But really getting in, I would say, when most people are super afraid in any type of investment, usually always works out, right? And I think you got in, which, you know, hats off to you, you got in at a time where most people were like that to all different investments. Yeah. And it's, it, I guess it's just looking at it through a different lens. I mean, it's hard to wake up every day when you're heavily invested in the stock market and you see all the swings and it feels so volatile. I have so many people that I talk to that they're just, they're so tired of it, right? Especially when the market's down, which clearly happens quite a bit. So it's really putting on the, looking through the lens of, for me, it was all about income, right? I wasn't looking at, I want to put money into something and try to double it in a period of X amount of time. It's really like, well, I'm looking for things that generate cash flow. And we all know that gets harder and harder now, especially where we are in this current market. But back then it was easier to find assets that you purchase. And it was, it, it was all about passive income, right? It was, I didn't really care if the $100,000 property I, I bought went to $200,000 in X amount of time. It was really like, what's my annualized return on that? Yeah, I think it's the, looking, the, at, looking at through a different lens. Yeah, because market, you know, the, the values of real estate went down, but because of people getting foreclosed on uh, and not having a place to live, they had to go rent something, right? So in, in essence, it pushed rents, rents up. But that was then, right? So now another celebration this week as we're recording this, you launched a new podcast, The Impatient Investor, uh, which I'd love to talk to you about. Uh, but also your, your partner, Michael Ayala, has had a podcast as well, Investing for Freedom, where you guys talk about your story, talk about what you're seeing, and then talking about uh, opportunities that currently exist, which we're going to get into. But maybe first, before we get into some of the audience's questions, maybe talk about what is the the mission of the impatient investor and you know investing for freedom, which is you know the, these podcasts the two of you are a part of. Yeah, I think so. The impatient investor has really been something that's been kind of in the back of my mind for years, and I've told the story before, but. Literally, it's just the eye-opening moment for me was watching my parents' retirement just get absolutely devastated. And even further to that, my grandfather, my dad's dad, grew up, got married, had three kids, owned a home, owned a car, put everyone through school, lower middle class, all on one salary. That's completely out the window. And so the theme of the impatient investor is really, it's the American dream is dead. And what worked for my grandfather, my dad's dad does not work for today's modern times, period. I mean, it's really, it's all about having multiple streams of income and being able to do what you want. That's really the theme behind this. It's interesting you said that because we're going to get into one of the, the main questions uh, I get around real estate, which is, Patrick, how do you in- achieve financial independence by investing in real estate? So I think that question is interesting. Because I think there's an implied answer that, that a person wants when they ask that. So I'm hoping we get to that. But when you hear that question, like how do you first characterize independence? Because you you just mentioned it with what you said in regards to the uh, American dream, which I totally agree with. Yeah, I think independence, I think it means different things for different people. I mean, for me, it's I didn't want to be tied down to a W-2 job in corporate America and all of the whole golden handcuffs, right? I mean, we've all... You've worked in in corporate America and even as great as that job could have been, my gig was really good, but it's still, it's corporate America. It's it's a lot of backstabbing. I think independence means a lot of different things to different people. For example, some people want to create passive income where they're not working for that money. It's their money working for those returns. And that gives them 
another 10 hours a week to spend with their family or time to go on a three-day, four-day, five-day long weekend. It's different things, but it's freeing up that time because at the end of the day, it's, it's all about time. Does that make sense? No, it totally does. Yeah. Time is the only finite commodity, right? And you can argue that, but you look at what humanity has done for hundreds of years, it's figured out ways to get more time. Right. It's, you know, we don't need to go down that tangent, but it's the same thing today. There's some meaningful things that people want in life. And, you know, even though today we live a lifestyle, even if you do work a 95, it's unlike any in history. At the same time, people are always wanting more. They want to grow. Uh, We're kind of driven for innovation. And that's where I wanted to get into real estate, right? Because real estate is one of those asset classes that it's so broad and there's so many opportunities, micro opportunities within that macro asset class, sometimes it's, it's confusing, right? So when you speak of real estate, there are a lot of things that probably come to mind for people. Maybe talk about the different ways to invest in real estate and then maybe segue into the, the passive income, the real estate that does allow someone to experience more time, more freedom, because there's definitely real estate that does not give you more time and not give you more freedom. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess the first thing is it's figuring out, are you looking for another job? And if you are, and you want to go out and you want to flip houses, you want to be an active real estate investor, which means, hey, I'm going to go out, I'm going to build a team, I'm going to buy whatever asset class, I'm going to manage it. A lot of variations within that that's great. And maybe there's some higher returns on the backside. There's also a lot of risk, especially if you haven't done it before. But kind of going back to what you said, it's also, it's adding another job. A lot of the folks that that I talk to who are in my circle, they're really not looking for more work. They're not looking for more jobs. They're looking to put money to work. So on the active side, certainly opportunities there across the board, just depending on where we are in the market cycle. But more on the passive side, it's figuring out, are you looking for something that's an income-based model? Or are you looking for something with growth? You know, Are you into something that's more of a speculation? I mean, where we're sitting right now, I mean, we're in June 2020 in, in the middle of this coronavirus and, and COVID and no real estate is the same. And right now where we're sitting, like I wouldn't want to be an owner or operator of office buildings, right? I mean, think about you had a portfolio of office buildings and they were at 81% occupancy and literally in probably a week, it goes to 5% or zero or nine or I mean, crazy. The same thing with retail. So just like you had said, real estate is so macro and then there's so many niches within it. And I think it's just so interesting to figure out what's going to, looking at the long term is I've been in residential real estate my entire real estate career, which I think is is always going to weather a lot of storms depending on where, you know, what part of that sector you're in. Affordable housing specifically, I think is a great place to be. So I think it's figuring out, first of all, do I want another job or am I really looking for something more passive where I do all the due diligence on the front end and then figure out how to put your money to work? These are good points. And you brought up some inherent risks that I think are, it's in all real estate, but at the same time, there are certain questions you can ask and also kind of put your crystal ball cap on looking into the future, right? And, you know, sometimes you can see it, sometimes you can't, right? You look at retail and how many people just put everything into retail. And now, you know, Amazon comes around and and disrupts it. The office, very few people could have seen what was going to happen, right? And how we're still shut down after months and months. And now, you know, it's kind of become the psychology of business 
where you don't have to hire somebody in your local area, right? Now there's opportunities that are going to exist around the around the country. So who knows what's that what that's going to do because office leases are typically five to ten years. So it may it may have to play out over a period of time. Right. But things are shifting just because of how people are innovating. Also black swan events. You had said something that's interesting, right? Where from a residential standpoint, and residential still has multiple niches. But from a residential standpoint, people need a place to live, right? That's never going to change. So maybe talk about those different micro sectors of the residential investment world. And maybe we can unpack where maybe some of the opportunities are now and perhaps some things to look at in the future, because I think things are in the midst of changing. Yeah, I guess the first thing to look at is 50% of wage earners in the country make less than $31,000 a year. What's interesting is a lot of those folks are essential workers. If you think about what someone at Costco is making or Amazon fulfillments, gas stations, whoever's left at restaurants, all the essential workers are out there. A lot of those folks fit that profile. So you've got 50% of people that, let's say you make $30,000 a year and you take home $24,000. Like, What does that get you for a housing allowance? I mean, the median mortgage, the last median mortgage numbers I saw was somewhere around $1,200 a month. You can't afford $1,200 a month and probably don't have the FICO to qualify for that. And it was so funny. I mean, further to that, Chase just announced, I think it was maybe about three or four weeks ago, that on single family home loans, that their minimums are now no less than 20%. Their FICO went up to what you needed to qualify. So how does that affect the housing market? Well, it means there are more people that need to be renting because 30 days ago, they were able to qualify for a mortgage and now they're not. Now let's go back to the 50% of wage earners making $31,000 or less. And again, they don't generally have the FICO to buy a single family house. They don't have the down payment for a single family house. And it goes really to that segment. I mean, most Americans, it's like one in three have less than $5,000 in savings. Some have no retirement whatsoever. So there's this long-term demographic shift towards lower income housing. And they talk about, you know, the middle class is shrinking, right? Like, what does that mean? Does that mean that the upper class, that the richer, that's growing? Like, absolutely not. I mean, certainly to a degree, but it's the lower income folks, like that niche is getting bigger. When you have innovation, right? Innovation is doing more with less or is doing the same thing with less. You start to look at labor. Labor is very expensive. And I'll, I'll be frank, when my team went home and started working there, I don't have a food allowance. I don't have parking. You save quite a bit of money. There's lots of different expenses, whether it's the FICA that we pay for you know, Social Security, Medicare, whether it's health insurance benefits, whether it's other benefits. I mean, th- these eat into, you know, eat into a business. And obviously, when businesses are not receiving as much revenue as they had before, they're looking for ways in which they can innovate. And that's where I would say the longer you've been in a profession, the longer you've been in a specific career, the more of a habit it's become and the less likely it's that you've been to innovate. And by not being able to innovate, it puts you out of the money that you were used to receiving. So that's why it's vital for that. And you're right. It's like half the country is living at that level, but still they need a place to live. They need a place to work and they're going to go seek those places. So how do you describe maybe the different types of affordable housing that's out there? Yeah, I think there's a couple types. I mean, you've got multifamily, certainly. And what's interesting, I saw an article 
I think it was yesterday, and it's the article basically said even with mortgage assistance, it, it was 47% of homeowners are considering selling their homes due to the pandemic we're in right now. So there's so many trends that we're seeing that are pushing towards really America becoming more of a rental market, which is, that's not a new trend, but certainly the, the circumstances that we're seeing right now are, are all pointing towards that. So I think just as far as different kinds of affordable housing, we've been in the manufactured housing space for a while. That's certainly one of them. Maybe it's C or D class apartment buildings. And the other thing that's so interesting with all of COVID-19 is if you're not a candidate to go buy a home and you're going to go live somewhere, do you want to move into a big apartment complex right now? Maybe not. If that's within your budget, I mean, I don't know. We're having now this new resurgence of cases. We're here, you know, I'm here in Arizona. All of a sudden this week, there's more cases and they're starting to shut things down again. I don't know if I would want to live in a big apartment complex. So that's absolutely one of them. Manufactured housing is another one. In some markets, you know, there are still single family houses that you can pick up for $40,000, dollars $60,000, maybe less. I would qualify that as affordable housing if you can afford a eight or nine or a thousand dollar monthly home allowance. I was just thinking about tiny homes, but I mean, those are really people downsizing by choice, right? That's more of a lifestyle choice. A, yeah. yeah, it's a lifestyle choice, right? It's not, I mean, th- those are 40, 50, 60, 70,000 dollars too. So I think more lifestyle, but I think those are really the big ones. Let's go in that direction. As I said before, the idea of a crystal ball, right? Because you, you look at, what you mentioned is the wealth gap is broadening. You also have a very young generation that has pushed up prices of apartments, but it's also caused some, I would say, physical shifts, right? From maybe more East Coast areas to Southeast areas, from West Coast, maybe to the to parts of the Midwest, Texas. And they also have a different lifestyle. The younger generation has a different lifestyle. Now, given COVID, you have a demand for being able to accommodate people that work from home, but also you do have those fears associated with living in a kind of a more dense environment where you have neighbors that are literally a few feet away. So yes, you see those trends and now what's hit with COVID and what things will do in the future, right? I think it's it's interesting to look at what the baby boomers are going to be doing. Uh, It's going to be interesting to look at what the Y generation and millennials do and then also from a wealth gap perspective, lower income housing, it's going to be interesting to see those trends as well. So where do you see things, things shaking out? I think we're still in the middle of it, but what are you trying to keep a pulse on? And we talked about this for a second earlier before we jumped on the podcast, but it was interesting to just think about looking at, at the US as a whole, and you've got these major markets, you've got Los Angeles, DC, New York, all these very densely populated areas, certainly New York City at the top of that list. And funny enough, they were the the leader in all of this COVID-19 at the beginning. For a while, I think you would see all of these small secondary and tertiary markets around the US. And some of them are kind of flat or maybe in decline. You'd have so many companies that are outsourcing to outside of the US. And a lot of it's jobs. Like We all saw what happened in Dallas, Texas the last 10 years. And why were companies moving out of California and other areas? Well, they weren't just they weren't business friendly and they weren't playing ball with these companies. So the companies said, Well, why am I gonna pay this extraordinary amount of taxes to be here when you're just treated poorly? And so why was Dallas really explode the last 10 years? It was jobs, right? So if you're in you're in North Dakota and you can't find work, Dallas, Texas had pretty affordable housing back then. It's certainly more expensive now. 
well, guess what? You're going to move because you're going to move to where the jobs are. So I think for a while, it was interesting. It was like, do people cluster more around the big markets and Dallas becomes larger because there was land and they could build and expansion and, and all of that? And I think that was a pretty interesting trend that was prior to this. And now it's like, I feel like it's potentially going in the other direction because again, do you want to live in New York City right now? Do you want to live in these big, massive apartment complexes? And I'm sure we'll see the other side of what's happening with COVID right now and and crossing our fingers that the destruction, we know it's going to be massive, right? But hopefully it just doesn't completely destroy the economy, which only time will tell. It's a year from now or two years from now or three years from now. But I feel like the trend of leaving some of these major markets, I think we're going to see more and more of that. We'll be interesting to see what the data shows on that. Yeah, it, it, we're early in it. At the same time, you look at the opportunities, right? And I, I see things happening in a number of ways at the same time. You're just not going to be able to tell right now. At the same time, as you look at investment opportunities, I think these are where good due diligence questions come from. So when you are presented with an opportunity, you're able to ask questions about where's the demand coming from? How much of it is there? What is the quality of that demand? You know, what came to mind when you were talking is, you know, the supply chain, I don't think people have realized, you know, how disrupted it's been. But I, I think manufacturing, right, is there's going to be more of that in the United States just because there's more control and there's less disruption. And the manufacturing cities, I wouldn't be surprised if there's more demand there for better housing. So looking at, again, where trends are going and trying to make bets, make investments that you're able to mitigate risk by understanding what's coming in the future. Like Maybe as we get into what your specific business is, maybe talk about what you've seen over the last 10 years as far as real estate investment trends, whether that's single family or whether that's apartments. And what have you seen as like some successes and some failures? Yeah, I think overall, you know, we always go back to until there's not a need for affordable housing, it's always going to be a viable option out there. Hard to tell. I mean, if you've got someone who's building A-class luxury houses, there's certainly a niche for that. But what happens during a downturn is usually the first thing that happens, certainly talking as a business owner and other business owners is, well, the first thing is you're looking at your expenses, right? And you're figuring out how do we batten down the hatches? Like we don't, you know, we're looking at these numbers. I mean, as of now, what's the date today? June 19, 44 million jobless claims, right? Like that's incredible. And does that get to 50 million? And does that mean six months from now that there's half of those still out of work? Like, does that continue to affect retail? Does that continue to affect office space? My guess is absolutely. Will it affect residential real estate? I would assume it just depends on how bad this really gets. But I think if your core mission in real estate is residential and until there isn't a demand for affordable housing, and until there isn't a demand for housing in general, it's just figuring out what your comfort is on certain niches, right? And again, back to what you were saying, you would never have thought the office space building market would be devastated in literally, what, days, right? That's crazy. Retail, yeah, you could see like the Best Buys and these huge, massive buildings that are whatever square footage. It's like there's only so many tenants that can go into that, right? So your niche of, as an owner, being able to rent that out is very small. So I think just goes back, I mean, we're so bullish on affordable housing, but we're also, I think just residential real estate in general for the long term is going to be safe. And you made an interesting comment before about when the stock market, all of the swings, 
And certainly if you're owning, you, you own a piece of real estate and you're in a correction, you may lose value in that home. You may have a home that's 150000 Now it's worth $98,000. But did the rents decrease? And it, the answer across the board is not really. Like rents have always trended up for the most part. It doesn't mean you can pick a market and say, well, the rents were lower here and this year, but overall rents have always increased. And it kind of goes back to the story of my grandfather. It's like the reason why people are, are sitting scratching their heads today and saying, well, why, why is it that we have four jobs in this household and we can barely make ends meet? And the reason is because expenses are through the roof and salaries are not keeping up with that. And that goes back to the American dream is dead. Like that worked 30 or 40 years ago to have one salary and live a pretty nice life. Certainly weren't wealthy necessarily, but you know, you paid the bills and put the kids through school. Like that's out the window. So that's really scary. And if that's the trend, then what does this look like in 50 years or 100 years? And I don't have the answers, but you know, you look at the data and you look at where the trends are going. You just made some interesting observations, which is actually a question that we got, which is were the primary differences between real estate investment and other types of investment. And you hit on something first and foremost, where supply and demand oftentimes, as well as access to financing, are big factors when determining the value of real estate, right? Supply and demand, there's more demand, then the prices go up. I think demand these days is contingent on how easy financing is to get. At the same time, you have rental income. People need a place to live. And that is one of their first bills, their housing and their food. Okay. And so I think that that right there kind of secures residential in an area which is unlike other investments, right? Because you have two things going on. You have the income side of things, and then you have the value side of things. But then also with real estate, it's tax different if you own the real estate, where from an investment standpoint, there's different taxation. And from a real estate standpoint, there's different taxation. And with real estate, it's much more favorable. And you also look at, I would say what you had mentioned, prices are going up. We're in an, a monetary system that requires debt. And what debt does, which is increasing the money supply, it's because the monetary policy wants growth. They need growth. Their target inflation is positive all the time. They can't, you know, they don't want depreciate or deflation because deflation means they're not going to have enough money to pay interest on the debt that they've been racking up. So you also look at their incentive to keep pushing more money into the system, more money into the system. And the value of your property is going to go up. At the same time, if you've used financing or leverage to acquire the property, the value of that debt goes down as inflation sets in. Plus, rents typically will rise with inflation. So you have a lot of very interesting pieces and characteristics of real estate that don't necessarily exist in other investments. And then focusing on I would say a very big slice of the demographic bell curve. Okay, it's not to say that real estate, from an affordable housing standpoint, is without risk. At the same time, there are a lot of factors that help you mitigate it. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess through all of this, where we sit right now, there's just too many unknowns with jobless claims and everything else. I mean, our good friend Ken McElroy has been saying that they're talking about. I think 30 or 40 or 50% mortgage failures over the next amount of time. You know, I mean, the courts have been shut down through most of this time. So you've got people that haven't been paying rents on their office building that they own, right? Or, and same thing with the folks that are leasing out of this. So I saw another headline that said, 
that mortgage delinquencies surged by $1.6 million in April. So we're still, we're so far behind on the data of what's happening. It's like every single month, there's new information that comes out and it's so complicated and it's so complex, but I keep going back to, if you have the option to invest in residential real estate and it makes sense and you're clear on your direction and, hey, I'm in an income model and it's a long-term, you know, you're not trying to flip things, which I think that's out the window these days. I think residential real estate, and I think specifically affordable housing is just always going to be needed. Well, let's kind of wrap things up and maybe speak a little bit more about your business and specifically in this niche, right? You started off in when we first met, you know, I think around 10, 11 or 9, 10 years ago. And it was focused on single family homes, as you, as you mentioned. And you learned about being able to form a business where you syndicated, where you started to get other investors' money together and you form a business around being able to take that money and allocate it to bigger projects to have bigger leverage. So maybe talk about what Four Peaks Capital Partners is, like what you guys have been doing for the last several, several years, and also what are some of your plans moving forward? Yeah. So I think probably about 2013 is when I stopped buying single families. And it was simple. They just stopped penciling out because the market crashes into in the subprime crash, right? And everything within that time period, all of a sudden real estate's on sale. And by the way, we're not in a real estate crash right now. We're, we don't really even know what we're... I mean, are we technically even in, in a recession? Like, I don't think so, right? It's still a pandemic. Without um, the Fed, we would be in a, a depression, but they've printed so right. much money. <laughs> it's like, yeah. and, and that's another employment benefits. And yeah, it's crazy, but that's papered over what the real issues are. Yeah. So I think about 2013, stopped buying single family. And it was really looking at what the next opportunity was and really took a, a hard look at commercial and different kinds of residential and apartment buildings and the whole thing. And we kind of stumbled across manufactured housing and really looked at the metrics. And even back then, it goes back to, you can complicate this stuff so much, but the simplicity is it's supply and demand, right? It goes back to 50% of the wage earners are making $31,000 a year. Funny enough, in this sector, the collections over the past 90 days have been fine, right? Like We don't know where this is going to go in the next six months, three months, a year, but we've been okay through this as an owner and operator in the affordable housing space. So, and of course, I certainly didn't see a pandemic coming in 2020, but looking at the numbers in the supply and demand and simply does manufactured housing pencil out and make sense? And it certainly did. So that's been our focus. My partner and I, I mean, we've got a big heart for our residents and providing safe, affordable housing for them. And that's kind of been our business model the last six years and really most of the focus on what we've been doing. Well, the reason I be, I got excited about what you guys were, were doing, because this was probably, man, 2011, 2012, I was helping the son of a friend of mine who had some drug problems and you know was kind of getting his life back together. And he had tons of debt that he was trying to figure out. And so I helped him with some debt consolidation stuff. And I helped him just kind of put a savings plan together, spending plan together. But he had been working for this group that essentially owned uh, manufactured home areas around the country. And I, I know I've mentioned them to you before, but it was just a family, right? They didn't, they didn't necessarily syndicate, but they were extremely well-off, extremely successful, not because they had them, but because they figured out the business. And that is something that you know, I knew you had within your mind as far as understanding 
the entertainment space when you were back in that industry, but how you brought that experience and Mike's experience as well, right, to form a business out of it, which is not just buying and renting, right, but it's establishing a community. It's using systems, it's applying those systems to different areas of the country. And you guys have been able to do that remarkably successful. So talk about maybe that element of things because it's not just the ability to identify an opportunity okay, where there's numbers that make sense. In the end, numbers measure something. And when the measurement is to a process or a system or an activity without a business around that, those numbers aren't realistic. <laughs> so maybe talk about that element of the business that you guys have created. Yeah, it's a great question. So I guess looking at this from more of a 20,000 foot view, I mean, there are three big parts of our, our business. One is our residents, the other is investors, and the third is our team. And when we started out doing this, we were a virtual company. I was in California. We had people all over the US, assets all over the US. And for what we were doing, it just simply didn't work. It was too hard to manage, too hard to manage crews in multiple markets in multiple states. One of the reasons I moved to Phoenix about three years ago was to open the office here with Mike. And so back to those three things, let's just talk about the residents for a second. We're going into these markets that potentially poorly managed assets, and you can't go in and say, well, rents are this and they should be this, and we're just going to raise the rents the first year. And we're going to pass back utilities and, 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 and. Like without our residents, we don't have a business. So you have to be thoughtful and mindful and conservative about how you approach each market and how you increase rents. And the second part of this is, is clearly our investors, which without our investors, we wouldn't also have a business. And then it's the team. And the team is probably one of the most important parts of this because with the right team, you put a plan into place and you can go execute that. So we, we really spent a lot of time building out a vertically integrated company where we didn't have to outsource a lot of this. And we could be very thoughtful about, well, we've got all of these projects that we're working on and how do you build a team to, to manage these efficiently? And that's what we've spent years doing now. And it was really amazing to actually move to Phoenix and put roots down here and work on executing the plan. And you've also had some incredible mentors too. I mean, Kenny has obviously mentored you guys based on his you know, extensive experience you guys have involved with some mutual relationships that we have where you're learning from those that have experience, right? Which I think is huge. So maybe let's wrap this up because I know there's only uh, so much attention span you have and I have as well as uh, listeners. And you and I could probably just keep talking for the rest of eternity. But maybe talk about ways in which somebody can learn about Four Peaks. They can learn about you, learn about Mike, what you guys are up to, check out the podcast. Maybe start to talk about some of those resources, which we can also put in the show notes, but maybe just mention them audibly as well. Yeah, absolutely. So Four Peaks Partner is kind of our main equity company. It's fourpeakspartners.com. The Impatient Investor, which is my new podcast, which actually just launched earlier this week. It's theimpatientinvestor.com, and that's on all the major podcasting platforms. Mike has Investing for Freedom. Those are really the big three things. I mean, we, back to what you were saying about mentors and everything, I mean, we were around a lot of very smart, successful people. And the common thread, I think, between a lot of those folks is like give good information, give good content. How can you help? Very much an abundance mentality, which you, probably the reason that you and I have been friends for this long and we, we feel the same way. It's about how do you help, right? How do you give content? And it's a lot of different ways. So that's always been kind of a big mantra with everything we do is how do we help? 
Well, it's one of those areas where there's been so much innovation. I'm speaking to real estate investment and how it's evolved over the years, especially capital formation and putting deals together and how to provide good returns safely to people. And it's fascinating because it's gone so fast, yet the mentality most have in relation to making investments is still tied to what they've always been taught. 401ks, mutual funds, ETFs, stock, bonds. If it's not there, then there's other investments out there. You know, so it's, there's been this you know, evolution at the same time. The way in which people think about investments has really been changing slowly, much slower than the investment world has innovated. And so I look at what you guys have done and put together, and it's definitely something that I would check out. If you are an investor, you have some capital, you have some interest in real estate, maybe have a real estate already. Now, it's not something you just you know hand your money over to Andrew. It's one of those things where Andrew has been doing tons of education. You guys have done tutorials, videos, and currently you're putting together you know another website that's providing even more information so that investors can do due diligence ask the right questions, and subsequently make the right decision. So Andrew, talk about that website that you guys have been working on and what that's all about. Yeah, and it kind of just goes back to what worked for your grandparents. It just, it just doesn't work today. The American dream is absolutely dead. The website is newstreamsofincome.com. And it's really just, it's talking about how to create more passive income, especially in all of the crazy times that we're living in. So it's newstreamsofincome.com. Well, Andrew, it's been awesome. Thank you again for taking the time and sharing your wisdom. For those of you guys listening, all of these links, sites, etc. are going to be on the show notes. So check those out at thewellstandard.com. And then go visit Andrew's website, theimpatientinvestor.com and fourpeakscapitalpartners.com, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And thanks, Patrick, for all, all the things that you guys do at Paradigm. It's awesome. And there's just unbelievable content so you could spend a couple of years on your site. <laughs> That's a good thing and a bad thing sometimes. <laughs> well, Andrew, we'll have you on again, man. Thank you again for the time and uh, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Patrick. Okay. Be safe. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Oh.